So engagement with or control of deep disagreement within or between societies is to a considerable degree a concern of all politics. For democratic politics, especially in today's world of increasingly pluralistic societies, the issue flavours a great deal of the debates, transactions and outcomes. Not surprisingly, in view of the events of the past two decades or so, religious disagreement, conflict or dispute have become the focus of a great deal of discussion in this area. But it's important to bear in mind that there are many other sources of deep disagreement, this has been stressed on Peter say in lots of the talks that we've heard, and that there are many um, that can and do engender conflict and dispute in ways that affect political discourse and practice. Ethnicity, nationalism, colonialism, secular ideologies of various sorts, and deeply held ethical and philosophical outlooks do so as well. Much of the polemic of the new atheists ignores or insufficiently attends to this fact producing such basically ludicrous slogans as Christopher Hitchens' declaration that religion poisons everything. It's also important to observe at the outset that a dispute or disagreement, even of a profound kind, is not as such a bad thing, nor does it necessarily lead to conflict and violence. It's a somewhat strange feature of much discussion of religious disagreement that its dangers are often most loudly announced by those who are emphatic about the virtues of secular disagreement and even cultural diversity, As Liberal Democrats, most of them, they followed John Stuart Mill in advocating the benefits of an open contest of ideas, and those among them who are supporters of a multicultural society go further and advocate a kind of respect for divergent opinions and outlooks. Of course, such pluralists set limits on what can be tolerated and respected, as did Mill, and advocacy of and resort to unjustified violence is chief amongst those limits. I shall return to this theme, but it's worth noting at this point the fact that the obsession with the dangers of religious disagreement occupies a somewhat curious place in the democratic discourse. We might add that this is true even of that disagreement and conflict that involves violence, since many of those loudest in condemning what they see as religious violence are also loud in their support for state violence, often of the most extreme kind, as long as it's justified by their secular lights. Christopher Hitchens, again, is a striking example with respect to Iraq and Afghanistan. The place of religion in politics has assumed this central position recently in both popular and theoretical literature, principally because of the apparent revival of enthusiasm for religion in many parts of the world and the widespread belief that this revival poses a threat to democracy and political stability more generally. This threat is seen as coming not only from extremist Islamic jihadists but also from some democratic leaders with strong Christian commitments of whom George W. Bush was a prime example. Partly as a reaction to this revival and its perceived dangers, there's been a resurgence of intellectual hostility to religion, most evident in the popularity of the new atheist publications and gatherings. Even many of those who were never so stridently opposed to religion had assumed in the spirit of secularisation theory that religion would simply wither away with the advance of science and affluence. But secularisation theory is now in serious uh, dispute, even disrepute. Yet in many societies in the past, and quite a few today, It would have seemed strange to raise a question about the validity of religions having a role in the political order, since religion, along other forms of thought, both abstract and practical, were often closely interwoven in public consciousness. Some of this interweaving was its own enemy, in that religious concepts were often invoked to explain phenomena that gradually came to be explained more plausibly in other terms, most notably the rise in the West of the modern experimental sciences and their expansion into such areas as medicine, cast doubt upon the role of some religious concepts and the pretensions of religious authorities. 
the Vatican condemnations of Galileo proved to be an enduring symbol of this development, and for many people, helped, helped to set religion as a phenomenon apart from the other elements of public life uh, which, with which it had previously been closely connected. In addition, the great divide in Christianity that sprang from the Reformation raised doubts about the place of religion in public life, partly because of the dangerous violence that seemed inherent in religious differences, and partly because the split in Christianity meant that unity in religion could not play the same role in political stability and policy that it had at least appeared to do in earlier times. All this was accompanied by a rise of new political and social consciousness in which key ingredients were reason, liberty and democracy. These changes helped create much of the background to present concerns about religion in politics and to a degree in public life more generally. Because it can be easily overlooked, it's worth noting another fact, namely that this social and political integration of a specific religion was always problematic from the point of view of religion itself. The early alliance of Christianity with the Roman Empire delivered Christians from outright persecution, but absorbed the church into the political order in a way that was arguably deleterious to the Christian message. For their Belloc's famous sentence, Europe is the faith, the faith is Europe, contained elements of descriptive truth about the development of a degree of European unity and cultural achievement, but obscured the capacity of Christianity to be embodied in vastly different cultures, and also, of course, obscured uh, the origins of that faith in the Middle East and Judaic <coughs> tradition. The psalmist rightly warns, put not your trust in princes. And the prophetic suspicion of worldly power that seems at the heart of many religions can be diluted by too close an alliance with that power. In spite of the ease with which the terms religion and politics are bandied about, there's a good deal of opacity about the concepts of religion and politics. Debates rage among scholars about how to define religion and no consensus has been reached. It seems that religion is a sort of portmanteau word into which a great many diverse forms of thought, norms and behaviour have been untidily packed. It's clear enough that there are some paradigms that most would recognise as properly contained under the heading, such as Christianity and Islam. Though even here some have insisted that Christianity, for example, is misunderstood when treated as a religion. This is the message contained, if somewhat elusively, in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's prison letters. But other claimants to the status of religion differ markedly from such paradigms. Buddhism, for instance, is widely recognised as a religion, but amongst its many denials, major forms of it deny the existence of a god. Perhaps a family resemblance story could be given of the concept of religion as, been, as has been tried by theorists such as John Hick, or a definition that emphasised distinctive practice plus perhaps the idea of appeal to superhuman power or powers could capture uh, most of the territory. Such a definition has been attempted, for instance, by Martin Riesbrot in his fascinating book The Promise of Salvation, A Theory of Religion. In any case, I will assume in what follows that we can proceed by using cautiously <coughs> the obvious paradigms and showing some respect for the less obvious, but this will involve rejecting such common moves as describing communism or nationalism as religions in any but a metaphorical sense. These moves spread the concept of religion, I think, too widely to be useful in a focused discussion of the topic. Politics has a somewhat similarly messy conceptual shape. It's clear that what goes on in parliaments, presidencies and governments more generally uh, provide a paradigm of politics, but all sorts of less grand organisations are often said to be involved in politics. Sometimes this is pejorative description, but people can talk about university politics, church politics, cricket politics, etc. in a merely descriptive way without it implying anything tawdry. 
The slogan from the 60s that the personal is the political indicates the way in which the term can invade all aspects of life. Politics is, after all, intimately connected with the exercise of power, and power is ubiquitous in human life. But a narrower conception of politics is required by this topic, so without intending too restrictive an understanding of the term, I'll take as central examples those institutions, organisations, discussions, pressure groups and struggles that are concerned with national, state or regional government. My focus will be on democratic politics, though some of the problems discussed have relevance to any polity. I turn to the dangers of religion. One significant worry about religion and politics, for those who do worry, is that religion poses some distinctive dangers to civil peace. Chief amongst these is the danger of violence, but another significant concern is a suspicion about the lack of autonomy of the religious citizen. There are others, but these two are central and will be addressed more fully in what follows. The worry about violence is supported by the history of such episodes as the medieval crusades, the activities of the Inquisition, and the post-Reformation wards of religion, all of them involving the spilling of blood in the name of religion. More recently, the terrorist violence of Islamic extremists and the outbreaks of violence, for instance, by Indian Hindus against Muslim fellow countrymen can be added to the mix. Now, these data certainly provide evidence that human beings can resort to violence, and indeed unjustifiable violence, on behalf of religious causes. Yet even here, the evidence suggests that some of the examples cited as the most egregious cases of violence due to religious convictions alone are far more ambiguous in origin and sustained <coughs> motive. A fascinating example of this complexity is Peter Wilson's new book, A History of the Thirty Years' War, which argues that this war, so often invoked as the uh, archetypal uh, religious war, the duration of which was supposedly caused by religious fanaticism, was not, he says, primarily a religious war at all. There were, of course, religious elements, since it could hardly have been otherwise in 17th century Europe, <coughs> where Christian faith was an aspect of life in integrated in varying degrees with other central aspects. But most contemporary observers, quote, spoke of imperial, Bavarian, Swedish or Bohemian troops, not Catholic or Protestant, unquote. The war indeed began with a somewhat religious episode, the famous defenestration. But its ferocity and duration was not due, argues Wilson, to religious fanaticism, but monastic ambition and political fissure. Uh, as one reviewer of his book summarised the argument, the empire's hundreds of small territories were cash poor. To fight, they assumed impossible debts, adulterated their coinages and triggered a ruinous inflation. Unpaid armies could be neither supplied nor disbanded. They thus remained in the field, nourished on plunder. Uh, I mentioned the famous defenestration episode, but I don't know if everybody knows what the defenestration episode was, so I'll uh, spell it out. It occurred in Prague in 1617. Three imperial officers, officials, Catholics all, were flung out of the window, that's the defenestration, 50 feet above the ground by a group of angry, of armed Protestants, angry at the Catholic Habsburg rule in the Holy Roman Empire. They fell, calling on the Virgin Mary for help. Amazingly, they escaped death by falling in a dung heap and survived to warn the Emperor of the disquiet. I suspect that this amazing event will fill many in this audience with amusement rather than respect for the efficacy of prayer. <laughs> I, I will only remark that, that the two reactions are not incompatible. God may very well have something like a sense of humour. 
Some skepticism about prevailing views about the predominant role of religious faith in generating contemporary suicide bombing and terrorism has been expressed by the anthropologist Scott. Actually, Scott's not here, I think. We've heard this from him uh, already in his book, Talking the Enemy. His extensive investigations, he says, show that Islam and religious ideology per se aren't the principal causes of suicide bombing and terror in today's world. Also, of course, there's the findings of Robert Pape, which I discussed elsewhere about the minor role of religion in so, uh, so many suicide bombing e- e- uh, episodes normally uh, uh, alleged to be based on religion. So it must be remembered that humans tend to resort to violence for all sorts of reasons, and it would be surprising if religion, considered as a pervasive element in certain cultures, were not invoked from time to time in the rhetoric of justification. This need not show that religion has any intrinsic dispositions towards violence. Animal welfare concerns have produced violence in some contexts, as has environmentalism, but it would surely be mistaken to conclude that such movements are inherently prone to violence. Similarly, certain virtues have been deployed on behalf of appalling coercion and violence, as when the concept of family honour is invoked in justification of parents or siblings beating and killing their female relatives who want to marry outside the community or race. It would be extremely rash to conclude that the virtue of honour must lead in that direction, just as it would be absurd to reject any merit in the concepts of courage or loyalty because people waging unjust wars conspicuously invoke them. Yet more alarming, alarmingly in some respects, most forms of politics have themselves been factors in producing outbreaks of violence, even when there's little or no hint of religion in the mix. Fascist and communist violence throughout much of the 20th century are cases in point, and democratic politics have and continue to have recourse to violence when their interests are threatened. Uh, President John F. Kennedy, for instance, a revered democratic leader, took the world to the brink of nuclear <coughs> war, largely because of domestic electoral and status considerations generated by democratic pressures. Moreover, there are elements in most religions that aim to put checks upon the resort to violence. Christianity in its beginnings had significant pacifist elements in its outlook, and pacifism has continued to be an option for some strands within Christianity, such as Quakerism and the US Catholic Worker Movement. Later developments within Christianity in the direction of just war theory were largely concessions to human frailty, the apparent necessities of defence, and the upholding of justice. Consequently, they embodied strong restrictions on what could be allowed as legitimate resorts to violence. Other religious traditions also have complex relations to the employment of violence, and it hardly ever receives the sort of unconditional endorsement that would qualify the religion as inherently prone to promote violence in its followers. Of course, where a religion advocates violence as part of its basic message, then it would be fair to see its adherents resort to violence as influenced by that message, when that's what they cite, and sometimes even if they don't cite it, but there are other indications of its influence. Critics may concede that religion's not the only potential source of violence, uh, and uh, even not inherently prone to violence, but argue that there is a specific feature of religion that makes religious people more resolute and extreme in their commitment once they embark upon violence. Religious people, especially theists, are supposed to be more fanatical in their violence than others, Divine endorsement is a particular spur to unconstrained violence. But again, fanaticism is not a purely religious commodity, and there are anti-fanatical elements to balance it within religious traditions and teaching. The fanatical Pol Pot had no need of religious inspiration to perpetrate the horrors of the Cambodian killing fields. Outlooks like Maoism, Stalinism, nationalism, racism, even certain forms of democratic commitment, can produce fanatical slaughter without the need for a divine endorsement. 
What seems crucial is a certain sort of connection of ideologies or outlooks to an identity fixation. Uh, and, and of course it helps if that fixation is shared with and bolstered by others. Someone who identifies very strongly with a community, class, nation or ideology, or even with an issue that <coughs> resonates with their self-understanding, can be drawn into violence in defence of what they see as endangered. That's not to say that strong conviction is equivalent to fanaticism. Fanaticism is more than strong conviction, since it either involves evil ends or a certain unbalance in the way that some value is held in conjunction with other beliefs and values and the resultant warping in action that can be produced. The worry about autonomy is most acute in connection with religions that have a strong internationalist profile, potentially creating a duality of political allegiance. Specific aspects of this moved John Locke to exempt Catholics and Muslims from the tolerance that he thought the state should extend to religious believers. The worry figured prominently in debates in the not-so-distant past about the role of Catholic citizens in Western democracies, particularly the United States, where the idea of a Catholic president was viewed with widespread unease until the success of John F. Kennedy. More recently, suspicion of Muslim citizens has gained ground because of international jihad movements often associated with violence. The strong hierarchical character of the Catholic Church's structure and its emphasis on authoritative teaching remains influential in prompting views that Catholics, especially Catholic politicians and public officials, might have a divided allegiance, notably with regard to certain moral issues, such as abortion, on which church leaders had pronounced emphatically. Indeed, there is a range of controversial issues on which various religious allegiances have seemed suspect as a factor in the determination of public policy in a pluralist democracy. Examples are abortion, divorce, euthanasia, homosexuality and assisted reproduction. Such suspicions have extended to less, to less directly moral areas, such as the provision of religious education in state schools or state-supported schools, publicly sponsored prayer and religious references, and the wearing of certain forms of Muslim clothing by women. This sort of concern has inspired various thinkers to urge restrictions upon the kind of reasons that can be used to support policy in the public arena. And it's also connected to the widespread idea that there should be a wall of separation between church and state. In spite of the connection, the two outlooks have distinctly different emphases. The former, about reasons, is principally concerned with the intellectual procedures of individual believers, where the latter pays attention to institutions and matters of public status. Both, however, tend to support and draw sustenance from a certain idea of secularity that requires careful treatment. Consider first church and state. The United States probably endorses one of the strongest versions of formal separation of church and state in democratic <coughs> countries. The First Amendment to the US Constitution states in part, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, unquote. And Article 6 of the Constitution bans religious tests for public office. These make no reference to a wall of separation, though Thomas Jefferson used the phrase in correspondence. And the amendment has been variously interpreted to rule out many things that may not have been intended, such as prohibiting the state funding of religious schools, or the wearing or displaying of religious symbols in public institutions. Others argue that the amendment merely bans an established church and ensures freedom of religious practice. It's been claimed that in its origins, the separation involved a concern for religion rather than a fear of it, since it's freedom of religion and an ideal of religious toleration that lies behind the separation. Indeed, powerful religious arguments for the separation explicitly use the phrase wall of separation and were urged by the Baptist minister Roger Williams as early as 1644. 
More restrictive interpretations of the clause seem at first inference from the text rather than explicit in it. In other Western democracies, the wall has either not been fully accepted or been interpreted differently, as, for instance, in European countries such as Great Britain, Norway, Denmark, <coughs> Iceland and Finland, which have established churches, and several other countries that give varying degrees of recognition to a particular religion. <coughs> Many other democracies offer some state financial support for religious schools. On the other hand, some democracies, such as France and Turkey, have hardened secularity into a form of secularism that many religious people understandably regard as an unduly privileged rival ideology. In essence, the issue about the wall is symptomatic of a deeper problem with the understanding of secularism or the secular state itself. The basic idea of what we might call secularity is that there is a realm of human activity that is best governed and administered in accordance with goals that are not essentially religious. As John Locke put it in his letter concerning toleration, quote, all the power of civil government relates only to men's civil interests, is confined to the care of the things of this world, and hath nothing to do with the world to come, unquote. Here Locke seems to be echoing Christ's own view in the Gospels, to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So it's plausible to see secularity as built on this difference of concern at the heart of politics and religion. This foundation need invoke no fears of the dangers of religion, though it would have more significance if such fears were justified. It need not be hostile to or dismissive of religion, though it would clearly count against established or state-favoured churches, and as Locke goes on to argue, in favour of state toleration of diverse religions. It involves the rejection of the idea that the uniformity of religion enforced by the state is essential for civic stability and progress, but not necessarily the idea that religious commitment can support such stability and improvement. Nonetheless, the secularity model faces certain problems concerning the areas in which the concerns of Caesar and God conflict or overlap, or in Locke's terms, the way in which the things of this world and those of the next might interact. Indeed, it seems clear that many religions, perhaps most, insist that the path of salvation involves adherence to norms of public behaviour as well as the cultivation of interior dispositions and a commitment to public worship. Such norms need not conflict with principles and policies that guide the secular state, since some religious norms, such as the commandment to honour one's parents, will be largely a matter of indifference to state authorities, while others, such as a prohibition on murder, will normally fully accord to the laws of democratic and, for that matter, most polities. Yet there are clearly areas in which moral outlooks derived from religion can conflict with public policies and laws supported by non-religious arguments, issues such as the ones I've already mentioned about abortion and so on. Often defenders of the secular state respond to this problem <coughs> with strongly restrictive claims about the nature of secularity. Two of the most prominent such theorists are the American philosophers Robert Audi and John Rawls, who in different ways try to restrict religious reasons from having a valid place in determining laws and public policy. Clearly, this reaches beyond a concern for separation of the institutions of church and state and more directly constrains individual believers. There are many variations on the position. As out in Audi's version, citizens may have and offer religious reasons for some public policy, but they must also have and be willing to offer at least one evidentially adequate and motivationally sufficient secular reason. Audi, himself a believing Protestant, departs from those who would argue that citizens should not even be motivated at all by religious reasons in their approach to public policy. It's as well that he does, since that sort of restriction is both unrealistic and an attempt to deny religious citizens full enjoyment of their religious commitments. It's sometimes said liberal democracies succeed politically because they have privatised religion. 
There's a clear sense in which this is true and welcome. What religion you can have is no longer determined by public authority, but by private conscience. Moreover, there's a sense in which conscience is a private matter, and increasingly decisions about behaviour, including political behaviour, are viewed by many religious people, especially Christians, as matters of conscience. Yet there's also a sense in which reference to privatising is misleading, since the practice of religion cannot be entirely private without being inauthentic. Religious believers need to worship publicly, and more significantly, they need to embody their convictions in practice. As already mentioned, it's inevitable that some of these practices and beliefs will have a social and even a political impact. Important questions concern the nature and limits of such impact. Hardy thinks that respect for the equal dignity of citizens in a liberal democracy prohibits citizens coercing others on the basis of religious doctrines that they do not share. Instead, political decisions should be based on a shared conception of secular reason. In Audi's version, this respect must be shown across the board of public policy. In John Rawls's more complex version, it tends to be restricted to constitutional essentials. Both Rawls and Audi stress that their concern is less with the dangers of divisiveness and violence, though that's indirectly relevant, than with a certain basic moral political value of mutual respect or reciprocity involved in what Rawls calls fair terms of cooperation. I want to give a brief account of Rawls's position. It's, of course, immensely complex and lengthy, with some attention to the way that it agrees with but departs from Audi's. Rawls has remarked that uh, Audi's notion of secular reasons is ambiguous between the sort of public reason that Rawls advocates and a version of public reason that he rejects. The crucial issue is the idea of reasons that can can be shared by all citizens in a spirit of mutual respect for their equal standing in the cooperative venture, making for a plural, stable, liberal democracy. Rawls doesn't think that the reasons must actually be shared by citizens, and neither does Audi. It's rather that they must be capable of being shared by them. The reasons must be accessible to all reasonable citizens in the public arena. This involves more than merely understanding the reasons and less than actually accepting them as one's own. As Rawls puts it, discussing the extreme case uh, of a proposal to deny some citizens religious liberty, quote, we must give them reasons they can not only understand, as Servetus could understand why Calvin wanted the burden of the state, but reasons we might reasonably expect that they, as free and equal citizens, might reasonably also accept. The point seems to be that public reason demarcates the reasons that may be legitimately deployed in public debate, at least about constitutional essentials, but it does not mandate actual acceptance by individual citizens of the particular reasons deployed, only the possibility of such acceptance. Significantly unlike Ali, Rawls thinks that this proviso, as he calls it, excludes not only religious reasons, but also all reasons that are special to philosophical and ideological comprehensive doctrines, as he calls them, such as utilitarianism, Kantian or Millian liberalism, and even his own comprehensive liberalism, uh, as expressed in his early book, A Theory of Justice. This is a much wider exclusion than Audi envisages. But as we'll see, it's probably a fairer account of what the inaccessibility idea involves. On Audi's account, there are serious problems in deciding just what are secular reasons, since the criterion of acceptability that both he and Rawls rely upon is likely to rule out many non-religious reasons as public reasons. A non-utilitarian can indeed see uh, what the basis for the utilitarians to her objectionable policy proposals are. 
But, we, but she cannot share that basis as a reason that is acceptable, though not actually accepted. And this seems like Cervantes. Well, consider the differences between environmentalists who want to protect the non-human natural environment, because that's in the long-term interest of human beings, and deep ecologists who advocate such protection because of the intrinsic nature, the intrinsic value of nature itself. They can understand one another in a fashion, but they cannot view the other's key premises as even in principle acceptable in deciding significant policy issues about the environment. On what basis could we declare one of these an exercise of public reason and the other not? If it's said that the non-utilitarian or the environmentalist can at least come to share the opposing commitments by becoming a utilitarian or a deep ecologist, um, this is no doubt true. But the non-religious is equally well placed to share the religious reasons by converting. Or more interesting still, they could come to accept some premise as fundamental where the religious people accept it as God-given. So there's a consistency in Rawls' position that's lacking in how it is, but that consistency seems purchased at a considerable price. Before discussing that price, however, it's worth noting several other aspects of Rawls' position. Rawls, one is that Rawls, as earlier remarked, restricts his exclusionism to constitutional essentials, or as he sometimes puts it, matters of basic justice. This seems to contrast with the wider scope of public reasoning, in, or secular reasoning, or disposition. So Rawls insists that public reason places no <coughs> restriction on the use of non-public reason in the background culture of civil society. That's an important point because it softens some of the impact of Rawls' exclusionism and wards off criticism from supporters of religion who think that public reason allows no scope at all for the expression of religious convictions in public debates. Rawls thinks there should be plenty of room for this in the media, in universities and in various associations. But public reason is the appropriate measure and ideal for judges, legislators, chief executives and other government officials in their deliberations and decisions regarding fundamental policies but also for ordinary citizens when they consider what reasons such officials should act upon. Such public reason will be bolstered by the overlapping consensus achieved when reasonable citizens from different faith communities, as well as those adhering to non-religious comprehensive doctrines, converge from their different <coughs> starting points upon the same canons of public reasoning. It can be agreed that such convergence is possible and usually a good thing, but a question remains whether it's the only legitimate way to conduct public debate in a democracy, even about constitutional essentials. A further softening of Rawls' position occurs in his introduction to the paperback edition of Political Liberalism, where in support of what he calls a wide view of public <coughs> reason, he argues that religious or comprehensive reasons can be used even concerning constitutional essentials as long as, and this is a, the important qualification, as long as in due course public reasons given by a reasonable political conception are presented sufficient to support whatever comprehensive doctrines are introduced to support. The obscure, the obscure content of in due course makes it unclear whether Rawls's concession is huge or small. If it permits someone to offer solely religious reasons when at some much later date they can produce public reasons, then we may not know at the relevant decision times whether they are reasoning legitimately or not. More importantly still, they may not know themselves, since if they have access to them at the time, then they surely would have produced them at that time. On the other hand, if due course is more restricted in time and access, then the position has shifted only minimally. 
are reasons the issue. The price Rawls seems to pay for his broader picture of exclusionism is that it exposes the weakness in trying to restrict the scope of democratic argument. Why should, why should voters or legislators be somehow prohibited from considering reasoning based upon contestable large-scale philosophical outlooks when discussing and deciding upon important questions of public policy? Judges, I think, are a rather different matter since they're reasonably under stronger legal constraints to order their decision-making. The basic insights and principles of comprehensive moral and political doctrines are not established by some commonplace, easily adjudicated calculus. And that's why such deep disagreements exist and persist. This doesn't mean that the insights are irrational or that the debate and discussion about them is futile, but they involve something visionary that's not to be captured in a comfortable formula. The conflicts between egalitarian and elitist political philosophy, communitarian and capitalist individualism, animal liberation and human speciesism, or deep ecologists and sustainable environmentalists often reach to constitutional essentials. And if they don't fit comfortably with Audi's model of secular reason or Rawls's public reason, so much the worse for the models. It's always possible that people's values and outlooks can be changed for the better by the injection of novel moral and political perspectives into the public arena, even where those novel outlooks are not fully accepted. An example of this is the way Australian Aboriginal religious beliefs about their harmony with the earth have supported attitudes to the environment that have influenced non-Aboriginal attitudes to that, even where they do not share the Aboriginal beliefs and apparent ontology. Another risk is that harmful elements in prevailing comprehensive outlooks will fail to be modified or removed, as they often have been in the past, by restricting the capacity of alternative comprehensive outlooks to compete fully in the public arena. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the anti-slavery movement confronted deeply held convictions about the unequal worth of human beings and brought philosophical and very often religious arguments to bear upon that great evil in ways that helped change public policy by overturning the secular reason consensus of the day. Rawls considers the anti-slavery issue and argues that although the Christian abolitionists appealed directly to religion, they could have done so, thinking that this was the best way to bring about a just society, quote, in which the ideal of public reason could eventually be honoured, unquote. But it's hard to see how such an, ab excuse me, how such an abstract possibility uh, that these people might have had these, uh, these views <coughs> can bear upon what people uh, actually did or actually are required to do. A further problem with the exclusionist project is that it's likely to further promote an undesirable process in which religious people produce spurious reasons for the policies they support. We have examples of this already, of course. Those Roman Catholics who genuinely condemn contraception do so for reasons that have nothing to do with the alleged inefficiency of condoms in preventing the transmission of AIDS. Yet such is the supposed dangers, that, that, yet such are the supposed dangers that some of them cite as secular arguments, because they think they can't use their legitimate arguments. I don't mean to suggest that religious people cannot sincerely advance reasons for public policies that do not rely upon specifically religious premises, such as those drawn from revelation or religious authority or tradition. Indeed, in the debates about most of the contentious moral issues mentioned earlier, many religious participants uh, deploy arguments explicitly meant to invoke natural reason as in appeals to the dignity of the human person or the likely damaging effect, social effects of, for instance, euthanasia, 
or the natural law tradition endorsed by many Catholics and others. Such resources are clearly available and have as much validity as various reasoning styles deployed by the non-religious when they don't use the same resources. Indeed, for the religious there are theological arguments to suggest that it's in the nature of God's creative power that such resources should be available to human persons. My only point against Rawls and company is that where specifically religious reasons are relevant or go beyond the non-religious reason or seem to their adherence to do so, there are no good reasons for prohibiting their use. There's a hint of something philosophical in the pejorative sense of the word about the philosopher's obsession with what reasons people can use in the public domain. First, without grave infringement of civil liberties, people can't be prevented from using and proclaiming religious or other <coughs> comprehensive reasoning in their public dialogue, even about constitutional essentials. Second, the real problem with religious involvement in the political realm lies in the area of practice and attitude rather than thought and concern with license. And the concern with licensing reasons tends to ignore this. From the political side, the problem is not the reasons individual religious people give for their advocacy, but such things as the underhand secretive ways their institutional leaders try to change policy, or the way they abuse religious authority by promoting political projects under a false guise of religious doctrine. There are also failures to adopt the positive aspects of open dialogue and compromise in the public arena, or the positive antipathy to doing so. Apart from the dangers these practices by religious people posed to a healthy polity, dangers equally posed when the non-religious resort to them, the practices should be suspect in purely religious terms, since they tend to contaminate the understanding and exercise of primary religious impulses. Concentration upon practical ways in which religious involvement in politics can be fruitful and criticism of potentially damaging modes of interaction may provide a much more promising way forward for all concerned with open democracy than the path of reason exclusion. It may also make sense, make more sense of Christ's remarks about due deference to God and Caesar. As well as practice, I've mentioned attitude, and this raises the question of virtues appropriate to democratic politics and the vices inimical to its practice. Again, this is not something that's an exclusive problem for the religious, but concerns everyone in democratic communities. Nonetheless, it's important to stress the possibilities for dispute resolution or peaceful debate and discussion that the practice of such virtues and avoidance of corresponding vices can provide for religious people, especially when such dispositions are endorsed by their uh, religious traditions. This touches on the complex problem of tolerance, on which a lot of philosophical work has been done in recent years. I don't have the space to enter into that fully in that debate, but I did plan to draw upon elements in that to sketch a picture of tolerance as a moral virtue that could be supported by some central strands of Christian belief. My problem is that I may be running out of time. Uh, can I go on with that? Another we'll five, ten minutes. Yeah. Okay. That'll be interesting. Robust tolerance requires not merely abstaining from persecuting or detesting others for their different beliefs, something that might arise simply from laziness, but to some degree respecting the others holding of those beliefs and associated practices. This doesn't require agreeing with the beliefs or never criticising them, but it requires some respect for their holding the beliefs, where those beliefs are integral to their self-respect. There are obviously limits to this, since no degree of respect should be given to a range of acts and practices that involve the persecution or serious harming of others. There are obvious acts and practices, such as murder, assault, armed robbery and much else, that fall within this range. But there will be problems determining precisely all that falls within it. 
Similar points can be made about the beliefs that underpin the actions and practices within the range. Such problems need to, be, need to be dealt with by reasoning about the cases and circumstances as they arise. And I think there's no mechanical recipe that can solve the problems in advance of such reasoning. I should add that I'm here discussing tolerance as a personal, moral and social phenomenon, not a legal one. I still have nothing to say here about the legal implications of personal problems, though there are certainly some. A word is in order here about the difference between respecting beliefs, the holding of beliefs, and the person who holds the beliefs. Suppose I have a good friend Jones whom I discover to my surprise believes that sexual fulfilment of homosexual love is disgraceful and immoral. Since I have what I consider excellent reasons to deny this belief, and perhaps reasons to think that the belief can have damaging consequences for quite a lot of human beings, I can hardly be required to respect the belief itself. What about my respect for Jones? Well, depending on how Jones has come by the belief and the spirit in which he holds it, there's no reason why I should lose my respect for him as a person, though I will no doubt modify some of my respect-related attitudes to him. If the belief is sincere and has been either produced by mature reflection or resulted from immersion in prevailing cultural norms, I need not think that he's personally disreputable because of the belief, grossly mistaken as I think it is. What about the holding of the belief? Again, given certain conditions relating to the way the belief has come about and the way it is held, i.e. <coughs> without hatred, without a demand for persecution or punishment and so on, it seems reasonable even to respect his holding of the belief. To take another example, I strongly reject the cluster of beliefs that go to make up what is called managerialism and that has been implemented in universities across the world in different degrees and different places, often to awful effect. Still, I don't think it would be right to withdraw personal respect from all those who believe in such qualification, nor, nor to treat their holding such views with contempt. I'm using the term respect here in a pretty minimal way. It's not equivalent, for instance, to esteem, which is sometimes used in this connection when toleration is discussed, nor does it rule out irritation or anger at the expression of mistaken beliefs. But it's not as generous, nor I suspect as content weak, as the sense of respect in which we might be enjoined to respect all humankind or all living creatures. In my usage, it's morally permissible, at least, to have no respect for Joseph Stalin or his holding of a range of moral and political beliefs, or indeed for much lesser scoundrels. I've mentioned some, but I thought, since it's been recorded, I'd better not go on. <laughs> um, if this rough sketch of what is involved in an attitude of tolerance is near, near to correct, then it's interesting to explore what sorts of existing religious thinking and practice could dispose religious people towards tolerance. It might then be possible to review in some detail those significant elements in different religious traditions to provide a sort of overlapping consensus towards tolerance amongst them, but not on rarefied public reason, but upon specific beliefs and virtues. Since Christianity is the religion I know best, I shall concentrate these sketchy concluding remarks on it, but I'm sure that many of the major religions contain elements that parallel those of Christianity. The Christian faith is founded upon love of God and love of neighbour. Christ's two injunctions meant to simplify the law and commandments by showing their underlying basis. As the parable of the Good Samaritan indicates dramatically, a person's differences in culture and belief afford no reason to ignore the requirements of love. This love is to extend even to one's enemies. The full shock of this injunction cannot be underestimated. Uh, as my seven-year-old granddaughter put it recently, after being exposed to some Christian education, she was at dinner table and uh, been neglected for too long, <laughs> burst in with, Jesus said a weird thing. He said you should love your enemies. 
Well, weird it is. But weird or not, this injunction is much stronger than the respect I have discussed as basic to tolerance. So it should at least offer strong support for that weaker attitude. Of course, this depends on the construal given to the concept of love. And there have been Christian interpretations of it that have allowed for terrible things to be done to neighbours. But a great deal of counterintuitive work, I think, has to be done to the concept to endorse these conclusions. And there's plenty of room for Christians and outsiders to press the concept back into a more acceptable shape. Another Christian value is that of peace, which is made much, much of in the Christian tradition, even when the tradition has been accommodated to notions like the just war. St. Augustine, for instance, who is often credited with inventing the concept of just war, though there are clear antecedents in Aristotle and Plato, writes glowingly of peace in the city of God and elsewhere, and makes it a central plank of his ethics. In his theory of just war, he initiates the idea that even a just war must be conditioned by an ideal of peace, an ideal that is never wholly absent even from later versions of the theory. Again, as an emphasis upon civil peace, that is surely a prop to tolerance, where the sort of respect I have been discussing can be uh, argued to contribute to maintaining peace. The virtue of humility, much maligned and even misrepresented by David Hume and other critics of Christian ethics, enjoins not the self-deceit of thinking yourself much worse than you really are, which is what Hume said, but a recognition that your powers of intellect and virtue are always limited, and that self-love is a powerful motive to exaggerating your powers. Christians are, are required to be aware of their limitations with respect to the almighty knowledge and power of God. So in all humility, they should be cautious of proclaiming their unique access to knowledge and understanding of God's nature and purposes, even when they're aided by revelation. In our present condition, we see, as St Paul said, through a glass darkly, and arrogance towards the way others see through that dark glass is surely an exercise of unbecoming pride. Of course, some ways of seeing through the dark glass are no doubt better than others, and some people may have turned aside from the glass altogether. So I'm not advocating some form of scepticism or crude relativism about truth. But some truths are more obscure than others, some more contestable, and all need expression in language, which expression is always open to a greater or less degree of interpretation. If this is generally true of our search for complex truth, then it must apply even more obviously for our grasp of the realities to which religion aspires to reach. These elements of love, peace and, peace and humility are just three from the Christian tradition which I will invoke here. There are no doubt more that could be cited, uh, but I will have to leave that for another time. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Tony. We've got about 20 minutes for questions. So I'll start with Julian. So, so Tony, just to focus on some examples you mentioned. Yeah. So homosexuality, the use of condoms to prevent sexually transmitted diseases, abortion, euthanasia, we can add IVF, and so yeah. on. Now, there is a sense in which, in my experience, um, Christianity has been intolerant in a way those who you're criticising haven't been. And it's intolerant in this sense that to tolerate your view on these things is to allow you to live according to the way you think is fit. So nobody, I don't think you should have euthanasia if you don't want it, whether your family should have an abortion if, you don't, if they don't want it, whether you should use IVF if you don't want it. Um, and likewise, your toleration of me is to say, if you want euthanasia, abortion, IVF, to use a condom, then you tolerate me engaging in those practices myself. Mm. But 
my experience over the last 20 years is that uh, there has been a desire to rule society according to exactly what you said, some sense of the social order, the dignity of, of the person, according to your particular set of norms. And that's not tolerance, that's trying to impose a moral view of the world over other people. And it's precisely for that reason that secularists say that particularly religious reasons have a very uh, discredited role in the formation of public policy. And you know, we're all very familiar with how active the Pope was in opposing the use of condoms around the world to prevent, uh, to prevent AIDS. And that, that is, that's not tolerance. That's in trying to impose a, a morality over other people. Now, that's what, what the secularists really object to. Are you seriously suggesting that we should, I should accept your moral view of the world when I make choices about oh, those I, sort of various aspects I, uh, of my life? Well, depending on, uh, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I think you'd be a lot sure if you accepted some of my moral <laughs> outlook on the world and gave up. I think you would yeah. if you accepted my <laughs> <laughs> I think even the most, you know, the most uh, uh, ambitious libertarian uh, probably thinks it's, uh, it would be vastly better off if they accepted his view of the world. Uh, so that's, I don't think that's an issue with anybody. Is it? Um, but the, the question is not accepting it. The question is what kind of, uh, what follows in terms of the, um, uh, the, Political and legal uh, implications of these different views of the world, uh, and there and there the interesting thing is um, uh, whether we'd be advanced any particular distance towards getting the best outcomes on this sort of thing uh, by prohibiting people from expressing uh, the reasons they have for believing certain things and further the reasons they have uh, for wanting the policies to reflect those beliefs. Uh, and the difference between us there, I think, is that you think um, that it would be uh, all sorts of important issues would be advanced if people were somehow prohibited from advancing reasons which have a religious basis. So you generally think that condoms and age should be determined by what the, the Pope believes is a religious reason for not... Do you generally You're missing the point. I, so I, that's I don't think that... They the, make a reasonably influenced policy. Yeah, that's a different question to determine. Well, I mean, I, they, I, they may well... If, if, I think our structure is... The trouble with the papal story on contraception generally, but particularly this stuff about condoms, is that um, the cause, the cause, here's the thing, uh, the story of the moral position is supposed to be conversation and conversation is bad. I think the arguments of this are lousy. I, mean, I think actually there are almost no religious based no arguments for it at all. It's all done by uh, a story about natural reason. So it's, it's, it's a funny can, candidate to take. But, but assume that it's, you know, it's actually sort of religiously based reason. The major problem with the papal thing on this is that, that uh, the Pope and his emissaries and uh, his operators around the world um, have been infiltrating various organisations, uh, have been uh, 
in all sorts of underhand ways. They've been uh, influencing bodies of one sort or another not to fund bodies, you know, not to fund organisations where condom use is, is being made available for com combating AIDS and so on and so forth. And they've been doing this in a, in a totally undemocratic and uh, improper way. They're the things I think ought to be fastened on. If instead of doing that, uh, the popper was just introducing, it was just writing things to people saying, you know, this is a really horrible and bad practice uh, because God says it can't be done. Um, I say let him do that. And, uh, people will decide on what, whether they think that's a, a reason worth acting on or not. Of course, vast numbers uh, treat it as totally irrelevant. Vast numbers of Catholics treat it as totally irrelevant. Uh, in previous talks, I've cited the statistics available on this. Catholics uh, engaging contraception in exactly the same proportions as other members of the community and all the rest of it. And uh, their expressed views on the matter, quite apart from their practice, are totally contrary to what the Pope says. Uh, nuns in Africa ignore all the, all the things that the Pope says about this stuff and get on with it. So it's um, a consequence of allowing the Pope to uh, produce reasons about this sort of thing and not what you suggest. Sorry. Is, that, is that true globally, though, the figures you just cited? I mean, my sense that they're mostly, this sort of yeah. promotion of that view has had a huge impact across lots of parts of the world. In Africa? Yeah. It, it, it certainly had different yeah. things. No, I, so, I don't know the figures for Africa. Um, okay, we're going to move on. Gina. So I'm really sympathetic to a lot of what you say, especially sympathetic to the point of approaching, I think, things out of roles, that we're going to to sort of carve out a special form of reasoning, which is exempt from worries, um, called secular, and discard everything else. I don't think there's anything essential. The idea of religious reasons that is, is problematic. But I wanted to try to um, construct a parallel argument, which is not supposed to be something essential to religious reasons. Yeah. Um, and then see what you think of it. And this is a parallel argument to get to a very similar conclusion to where Avni Rawls ended up. And the basic claim is that there are certain positions you can take in a democracy which by themselves not admissible. These are positions that involve denying the basic equality of humanity of certain segments of the population. So racist views, segregationist views, I think, views against marriage equality of homosexuals, yeah. views that express in themselves a diminution of the status of some member of society. Um, so supposing we grant that members of a democracy don't have to take seriously or respect those kinds of views, here's a controversial claim. Historically, holding of those kinds of views tends to be pretty tightly correlated with religious belief. For the perhaps for the following speculative reason, religions, because they're built on um, tradition and practice and long, 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 long developed forms of group thinking, have a tendency to identify in groups and out groups. It's just built into the way practice works. So there's a strong tendency, which is a correlation, it's an empirical claim, not an essential claim or a conceptual claim, but a tendency for people operating from religious backgrounds to give arguments of this form. Given that tendency, does this give us at least a very positive reason to be suspicious of religious reasons in the public sphere? Yeah. Um, well, I can, I can imagine well, there's several different elements in that. Uh, if it were the case that uh, when, I, when I'm talking about this, by the way, I'm talking about uh, the world as it is now, um, and in particular, I'm interested in democratic communities and the way they are now. Uh, the, the tendency you talk about 
it, you know, is one we've heard a lot about actually, you know, during the course of the conference and so on. Um, it, it's a real tendency, not restricted to religions at all, of course, as we've seen. I mean, this is a group out group kind of phenomenon. Um, in, the, in the world as it is now, I think that the uh, pressures to that sort of uh, the, the pressures that that sort of thing would bring upon <coughs> basic um, constitutional essentials, if you like. I mean, certainly things to do with uh, equal treatment of people in a, in a democratic society and so on uh, are are amazingly minimal. I think. Uh, I think, I think um, the change the changes in religious um, uh, consciousness, which have occurred through the interaction of religions with democratic pluralist societies, uh, have been so dramatic and reinforced by things within the religions themselves which have been brought out to bear on these things where they didn't before. Uh, that's been so dramatic that I wouldn't particularly worry. There's always something to worry about in a democracy, but I wouldn't particularly focus on that as a worry. Uh, and, I, and I also think if it's a worry for them, it's a worry for other groups, but also other groups have been uh, affected by the democratic community. Uh, I mean, I think in a way, uh, Rawls and, and Bob, uh, Bob Audi are, are, um, are too pessimistic about democratic resources uh, and democratic culture with all its faults. You know. uh, so I, I wouldn't particularly think that was something to get so alarmed about that you want to bring in those sorts of restrictions. Um, I'm sort of perhaps a slightly overconfident Democrat on these things, and, and I think um, anything which, which starts to say, we don't want to hear these sorts of arguments, we don't want to hear these sorts of reasons, this is why I was nasty to Julian yesterday about it, being totalitarian, yeah. uh, anything like that, you know, is anti-democratic. It actually has a, a thing against, against hearing these voices. Now, of course, we, don't, we want to put restrictions on what people can do, unlike, you know, Julian's earlier statement, which I'm sure he didn't mean that way, uh, about, uh, but of course I'll take it that way. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the, the libertarians, you can do what you like, you can do what you like, and of course we put restrictions on that. I mean, for moral, all sorts of reasons, moral reasons and so on. Julian doesn't really think that it's all right for me to go and murder her because, you know, I'm free, and freedom is the big thing, and let's go and do it. He doesn't really think that, I'm, I hope. Please <laughs> uh, and, uh, and numerous other things like that. There is a, there's a bunch of these things, which, you know, partly what Rawls is talking about when he talks about constitutional essentials, which we've managed to reach agreement about, uh, not irrationally, um, and they are to do with all sorts of crucial things about living together and so on, uh, and about morality. Uh, of course, there are ambiguities on the edges. There are a whole lot of things to be interpreted about. I mean, I... I think uh, you know, the difficulty of changing the US Constitution is something wrong with it. I mean, I think constitutions ought to be capable of review. It ought to be rather harder than ordinary voting. Uh, but if people come up with reasons for saying, you know, there's something really gone wrong with it, uh, we ought to, ought to block our ears and maybe something, you know. Uh, so I'm a bit like uh, Mao was at one stage, you know, a thousand flowers, uh, I think. And I don't want to see religious flowers put in a garden in the back with the, the shadows on them. Mm -hmm. uh, just, just oh, sorry, you were in charge. So I take it you're generally right about the way in which um, um, 
democracy is loving the influence of religion, but what would you say about a case of emerging democracy? So there aren't democratic yes. institutions, there hasn't been this time for religion to be mixed with democratic influences. So new constitutions are being formed, should, should religious groups be second-guessed because of this problem? It depends what the religious groups are up to, I think. I mean, I think um, Liz's talk, uh, the last talk, you know, shows some very interesting things about not only the influence of religion in getting into, uh, in bringing about, helping bring about the change, um, <coughs> but continuing role after the change. Uh, and the interesting thing that uh, Jacques brought up about, uh, uh, which ties into something I said in the talk, about uh, dangers of religion getting too close to politics, uh, because it may well be that the religious groups in, in South Africa have become so implicated with the ANC uh, through the, the mutual travails and so on, but now they're not taking a strong enough uh, stand and not, not, you know, not offering religious reasons and other reasons uh, against some of the autocracy that's developed and corruption and so on in the ANC. Um, so it's a very complex process this way and that, but uh, I mean one of the really interesting things I often cite about the influence of uh, uh, life in a democracy on uh, changing religious perspectives, and of course religious perspective changing quote secular perspectives as well is another thing to go into, but is the uh, Catholic Church's opposition to democracy in the, I mean, the 19th, early 20th century, most powerfully and, uh, and openly, uh, papal encyclicals and documents and so on, uh, condemning freedom of religion, freedom of expression, uh, basically democracy and all that goes with it. And it's not until the 1940s, but they stopped saying this for a long while, of course, but believing it, they continued to do it. And it's not really until the 1940s, John Courtney Murray and others brought a whole lot of important central Christian insights to bear to back up the idea, which had already become uh, a matter of second uh, nature amongst ordinary Catholic citizens, that there was an awful lot to be said for all this stuff. And now, I mean, the... the uh, awful of some of the things that the Catholic bishops in the United States are currently saying uh, uh, about one thing or another, uh, they're not getting up and saying that well, democracy is a bad idea, but we're against freedom of religion. Uh, and it's not just that I'm saying it, it would be unthinkable that they could say it. Now, as usual, we're uh, running short of time, so I'll ask you to keep your questions quick. So over here, please. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this uh, topic is quite interesting, you know, reducing the religious conflict. And we had a great conflict in 1947, mm -hmm. when many people died. Mm -hmm. And uh, our village was in Pakistan. At the midnight, 2,000 people came to attack our village mm -hmm. from the neighboring one, that we were sick, they are Muslim. Yes. And they called my father, you know, to explain certain thing. And he went there. When he told them, you know, Muslim and Christian, Muslim and uh, Sikh, they are spiritual self. Never born, never die. We tribal people are going to fight and die. So if there is any enmity between tribes, let's settle it. And the headman of the attacking party, illiterate. He understood the conflict. He said, we are friends, we have no enmity. So instead of attacking us, he gathered all those 2,000 people 
told them, these, these people are our guests. No harm should come to them. Mm-hmm. You understand? Yes. That is the light of God. Yes. When you have darkness, then you fight, then you kill each other. And that's what happened, you know. Light came on his own, mm-hmm. and his own loved darkness. Yeah. When That's a blind guide yes. leads the blind, they fall into the pit. Yeah. So this I'm afraid we have to move on a bit. I'll, I'll take a question over here, Francesca. Yeah. Um, I have two, two points, about just following up what Julian was saying. Yeah. Um, one thing is that tolerance seems to be incompatible with Catholicism in, in some respect, because, uh, for instance, it's written very clearly in the uh, encyclical letters and the canonical law, that politicians will work, will work for uh, in favor of laws against the Catholic principle, like uh, laws in favor of abortion or um, homosexual uh, marriages, are going to be excommunicated. So I don't, I'm trying to understand how it's possible for these politicians to be tolerant of secular views if they're going to incur excommunication, yes. one thing. Yes. And the other thing is how far should tolerance go anyway? Like if your if your friend is against homosexuality, well you can tolerate that view, you can keep on being friends with that person, doesn't matter if he's a different views. But what if your friend thinks that uh, all Catholics should be killed? Do you still be tolerant of that view? Or do you think that would be like a uh, deal breaker? Because that view is so horrible that you cannot be friends, so your tolerance of that person about that view is over. Because when the Pope refused to sign the UN petition against countries that um, treat homosexuality as a crime and in which people are killed because they're homosexuals, I really felt that it was like a deal breaker. I, t- I mean, I couldn't really have um, sort of an agreement with that position because that means to be responsible for the death of these people in these countries. So how sh- far should tolerance yeah. go? I think in my concluding remarks that there have to be limits to tolerance. And you just so um, the thing about the Pope uh, uh, and various other bishops, some bishops in the US uh, tried this sort of communication stuff uh, uh, during the election. So, uh, the thing about that, that fits in my thing about um, the uh, concentrating on wrongful practices rather than upon reasons that people have for things and so on. Very neat for that. Uh, I think that this, uh, the, all this stuff about excommunication and so on is, a, is an, abuse of, an abuse of religious authority. Now, to back that up, I have to go into uh, in my theory of religious authority, uh, which is perhaps a little bit idiosyncratic, certainly not the same as the Pope's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> theory of religious authority. No, no, but then you put the Pope's have you know, been conspicuously wrong about so many things over so many years, including the democracy thing that I was talking about before. Uh, and I actually think they were uh, profoundly wrong about the role of uh, uh, a politician in democratic society. Um, I think it's perfectly fair of them to say, uh, look, our official teaching is that the uh, abortion is a terrible moral wrong, uh, and uh, we want you to think about that when you change the vote. Good luck with them. Uh, that, that ought to be allowed in democracies. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, but uh, uh, I have a problem with them saying we'll do something to people who disagree with us. Uh, I mean, the real, the real pressure of all that stuff comes on clergy, and that's where I think it's you know it's an exercise of 
authoritarian power that um, uh, testifies to the fact that pre-democratic uh, uh, structural norms have persisted in the Catholic Church when they shouldn't. Which I've argued in my blog, which you must all famously read. <laughs> <laughs> in the Catholic Church. Uh, Ethics sorry. in the News, very influential uh, blog on our website. We'll, we'll just so far, 89 agree. I'd like to get it up to 100. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can read it and, and tick. Uh, yeah, we'll just try and get a couple no more questions. Uh, Roger Triggs, do you have Roger, a yeah. question? No, okay, we'll move on. Yeah. Roger Crisp. Thanks. It, 89 people like it, they don't necessarily agree. Oh, I said, sorry, <laughs> I'm very sorry. Yeah, you've had a read. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, at least 89 people have said they like it. <laughs> that's, true. That's, that's true. Trust the philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> I was rolling along on a cloud Actually, of approval. What it says is that 89 people say that. I'm just trying to get clear on the debate between you and Julian, Julian right? Yeah. So I suspect that Julian probably accepts something like Mill's harm principle. <coughs> yeah. The idea that the state can't interfere with uh, the way he lives his life except to prevent harm to other people. Right? Mm. Um, and his one of his concerns could be that if you allow in uh, religious reasons yeah. into state justification. That in itself, that may be fine. The question is, how strong are they? Okay. Mm. Can there be any cases, do you think, in which religious reasons can override rights based on Mill's harm principle? So, I, mean, I yeah. don't know whether this example will work, but yeah. imagine this kind of mass conversion to Catholicism in Australia. Thanks for people reading your blog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it'll have that effect. We've got a majority of, say, you know, 75% of people uh, thinking yes. certain religious yes. reasons should be yes. used to guide state policy. And uh, it's just, and th this 75% this wants shopkeepers not to be allowed to open their shops on Sunday. On Sunday. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think you. I think you're right to reconstruct. Well, I hope you're right to reconstruct your institution that way. I mean, and, and as reconstructed, it's very similar to what I think myself. Uh, I mentioned Bill's principle. So the only right I put on that is that I think the concept of harm is is difficult to unpack in a way that doesn't beg some of the questions that you wouldn't want to. Um, but as a sort of rough uh, index, I think it's quite, quite useful and important. If, uh, if it came about like that, that that's uh, what happened, uh, and the, the proposal then was that there would be no, no more Sunday trading. Uh, <coughs> I, think, I think my reaction to that would be, that's unfortunate. I, it, is, it, it definitely is a restriction on, on freedom of some sort. Um, a, a fairly trivial one, but still it has implications for people's... Uh, Earning capacities and mm. access things of one sort or another, um, but that's the sort of thing you've got to grin and bear. If it was something like seventy-five percent got control and they said that heretics should be burned, sure. uh, I mean that would be so clearly within the mill principle yeah. thing. That, uh, but that wouldn't be democracy; that would be majoritarianism. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean I do want to have a, uh, a constitutional core of some sort here, reached by agreement and so on. Okay, we'll fit in one more question, John Lane. Um, I, I, this may be a consideration that 
uh, may help your position in a way. And if we think about, say, incorporating Muslim participants in a democratic society, would it be helpful or the reverse to impose something like this restriction of religious reasons? In effect, is this a, uh, I mean, we, most people in this room have probably had experience of living in countries where Catholics were a significant presence and had some kind of agenda. But um, the, to, to imagine our, uh, our laying down this requirement on Muslims, we may feel that there's good reason to be wary about Muslims, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But uh, would this be conceived as an acknowledgment uh, as anything other than, than a serious violation of their rights to participate. I, I missed a bit in the middle. I missed a bit in the middle, John. What is it we're laying down about the Muslim? Uh, the, ex the, ex the exclusion of religious reasons as oh, such. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, it's, it seems to me that in general what we should be urging people to is an incorporation, uh, some sort of integration of religious and non-religious reasons and also looking for both good and the more important discrimination is between good and bad reasons, yeah. rather rather than kind of reason as such. Yes, but, but, well, uh, I mean, yes, I I, I wouldn't want the. Uh, uh, you're right. I think that this is somewhat supportive of what I think because yeah. I wouldn't want um, uh, anyone to be banning uh, Muslims from using reasons they drawn from their own uh, religious experience or tradition <coughs> and so yeah. on. And I, but I do think that um, uh, the other point you made connecting with that is, is very real. Um, the thing about a religious reason and a non-religious reason, as starkly opposed, um, is contrary to all sorts of experience, I think. Um, I, mean, I mean, people focus on things like a religious reason. God told me something. Mm. Now, you only ever hear people produce anything remotely like that. Uh, and, and of course, it would be a crackpot thing to say, just in terms of persuading anyone. So I mean, it's not. You know, there's, there's all those reasons against it anyway. But it's more likely to be something which has a mix of the uh, something that's distinctively religious, uh, something that's uh, connected with things everybody recognises in some way, uh, and and things which are appealing to a text, things which are appealing to traditions and so on. And so when these things are produced, someone who doesn't actually come from that background can, can say all sorts of things about these reasons. It's not as though these reasons are just, you know, um, free-floating uh, or autonomous and nothing. Mm -hmm. Except you can say, look, you've got your own text wrong. You know, I was talking to a Muslim chap the other day, and he said that text is corrupt. Or, you know, another fellow said that the better interpretation of that is such and such. Uh, you can say, but hang on, when you say, you know, uh, the religious outlook requires such and such and such. What about in your own tradition where such and such has happened? And a bunch of all these sorts of things. And then, and then there are particular reasons you can produce that speak to him as just a human being who has yeah. other convictions than his religious ones and so on, or her religious ones, and pro produce arguments in that way. So there's always a complex that goes into one of these religious reasons. Uh, and banning them makes it impossible for those things to get uh, discussed. You know, it, it clamps down. I mean, one of the other things I didn't talk about in the paper, but it seems to me is connected with this uh, banning of religious reasons, um, is that it's going to be counterproductive. 
I mean, it's 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 aimed at saying, you know, this way we'll have a, a more a peaceful situation, we'll have a better outcome, and so on. It, it won't. You'll alienate the religious groups even more, and and give them more and more cause to say they're being denied something important, a voice in a certain kind of way. And that's a very bad recipe if what you're interested in is the topic of this conference, uh, the, the resolution of religious dispute. Okay, well thank you very much Tony.